Hey everybody, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life. I'm excited to bring you episode 57 of the podcast today, and uh, I'll be a real honest with you, this is a timely one. This wasn't uh, the original plan that we had to release it this week, but uh, given everything that's happening in the world, it feels like it's necessary. My conversation today is with David Swanson. David is a, a um, kind of a, an expert in racial injustice around the conversation of race and the church. And in his new book, Rediscipling the White Church, he writes a very open and honest book to white Christians everywhere. Uh, this is such a good conversation um, with some practical steps on what you can do to help bridge the gap as it pertains to race. So we, we really hope you enjoy this episode. This is a, obviously a very serious topic in the world today, and we wanted to bring it to you sooner rather than later. As always, we appreciate you being a part of the Reclamation community, and we'd love to get connected with you uh, on the regular basis. The best way to do that is to text the word RECLAIM to 66866. Text the word RECLAIM to 66866. That way you're sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and our Friday uh, updates and reflections and blogs. So, so thankful for you. And uh, without any further ado, here's my conversation with David Swanson. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited today to have um, author, pastor, and speaker David Swanson here with me today. David, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a privilege. Well, you've recently uh, come out with a new, uh, a new book, um, Rediscipling the White Church, and it feels particularly um, just important and timely, given some of the, the tragedies that have happened mm-hmm. in the racial landscape of the United States. Um, so I, I, I guess the first question I have for you is that as we jump into this topic, how much of this conversation is is either sped up or influenced by things that are happening in the landscape of, um, of the world that we live in. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, and again, thanks for having me on. I, I think that there's these, it feels like these cycles where um, we kind of, we kind of are in our status quo and then there'll be some really public traumatic event, right? And we know the names that go along with these events and the lives they represent that you know, Trayvon Martin, you know, Tamir Rice, um, yeah, Eric Gardner, on and on, and, and we're in another one of those those moments right now. Um, Ahmaud Arbery, Brianna Taylor. So, so, so I I do think that we're in 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 one of these. I, I the language I use is public racial trauma, mm-hmm. and I think it's important to say public because that racial trauma exists all the time in this country. There's a baseline of, uh, of that kind of racial trauma that many uh, people of color, particularly African-Americans and, and Native Americans experience in this country, but then it kind of boils over, right? And, and that's happening right now. And it's, it's, it's compounded by, frankly, by the pandemic, which is exacted a, a disproportionate toll uh, on people of color, and again, particularly black and native people in our country, in our own city here in Chicago, um, you know, African American people are, you know, make up, well, in our, in our state, I should say, make up 14% of the population, but 32% of the deaths from from COVID-19. Wow. Um, and, and that's the case around the country. And so, 
Yeah, it's it's one of these things where I think to to live in this country is to um, is to live with this legacy of of racism and racial trauma, but then it it bubbles up and boils over to the extent that those of us, particularly those of us who are white, who could have ignored it, can no longer ignore it, and that's painful. Uh, there's also an invitation, I think, in in a moment like this. I love that. Um... Now, obviously, you and I are, are two white men and we're having a conversation about mm-hmm. race without mm-hmm. anyone who looks different. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just important to acknowledge that there's an immediate deficiency in this conversation Absolutely. because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. You've been having the conversation around uh, racial justice. So h- how did you get started down this path and how did, um, how and when did God really lay this on your heart? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have a, a Damascus Road story around this. There was not a singular moment. I'm a missionary kid. I grew up in Venezuela and Ecuador up until my high school years. And so I, I have some of that, I think, third culture DNA where mm. I, you know, I, I am probably most at home in, in multicultural settings. Uh, so I do think that's one of the ways that that God has equipped me for this sort of ministry. Uh, my wife and I moved from Western North Carolina a year after we got married up to the suburbs of Chicago for me to attend Wheaton College Graduate School. And we started to visit the city of Chicago and some of our, our close friends early on were from the south side of Chicago, which is a predominantly African-American uh, area in the city. And so I got to know Chicago through them. And, and what that meant was that I, I came to understand the city through uh, this lens of racial disparity and this history of uh, systemic uh, uh, racial injustice and racism in the city of Chicago. So again, there was not a singular moment. I think it was just this kind of growing awareness of um, of this of this racialized reality that forms so much of American life, and I just couldn't look away from it. I could not. You know, it's sort of the the you know the image of the matrix, right? When, once once you've taken that pill, it it it's it's impossible to turn away from, or at least it has been for me. Um, I'm kept in this by by friends, you know, by mentors, by peers who who live these disparities and who live this this reality that, in many ways, has been ignored by by those of us who are white. Um, add to that, I'm a Christian. And my conviction is that the gospel of Jesus Christ changed the universe, that it reconciled us with our creator and with one another across every line of cultural division and hostility. I I genuinely believe that the gospel did that and still does that. And when I read uh, the New Testament and the epistles in particular, I see the early church fighting for that reconciliation and not being content with anything other than a, a demonstration of the gospel that, that had to be reckoned with in a society of profound hierarchies and ethnic and cultural injustices. And so when I, when I see that in the scriptures, I think, why would we be content with anything other than that uh, in our day, why is it that that so many of our white churches have contented ourselves uh, with the the racialized patterns of this world and, and mm. conformed ourselves to those things? So it, it's a, I think it's been a combination of, of relationships, of friendships, of, of my own location, uh, but then this deep, deep conviction that the gospel really has changed everything. 
I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's interesting to me um, as I, I've had the opportunity to kind of dive into the, your book a little bit. One of the things that you talk about is segregation in the church. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I pastor um, a suburban uh, white church. I mean, mm-hmm. this, you mm-hmm. wrote this book for me. And yes. My yes. So yes. I'm very aware of that and I appreciate it because it's, it's a text that I think needs to be out there. Um, I don't think most people who are in my pews on Sunday morning um, easily recognize segregation mm-hmm. as it pertains to the church. Mm-hmm. And it's not from a place of malice or anything no. like that. No. It's just a place of ignorance. And so I, I'm, I'm dying to ask yeah. you, how, how did we get to a place where the kingdom of God, the diverse kingdom of God, the, the reconciliation of the kingdom of God has become the most segregated hour yeah. in the week? Yeah. 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 And there's so much there. And, and, and you're right. I mean, your, I, I, your congregation was, was what was in my mind because I, I, I had this paradigm shift. I pastored a multiracial church now for over a decade and I love it. I, I pray that, that God allows me to serve here for the rest of my life. Uh, but I had this paradigm shift where I realized over the past four years or so that when I preach to our church about reconciliation, there's a sense in which I'm preaching to the choir. Hmm. they're they're there right they they they're in it um and and yet many of my my white colleagues and peers who are pastoring in in majority white settings have said to me over the years there's just not a lot that i can do when it comes to racial reconciliation i appreciate it i believe in it i'm thankful you know that there are are multiracial churches out there but my setting is majority white and so there's not a whole lot i can do and the paradigm shift for me was no actually uh, you're on the front lines of this thing, right? Yeah. The, the, God has called each of us to the reconciliate the ministry of reconciliation for the sake of, of the gospel. Um, one of the one of the things that we have to realize, those again, those of us who are white in particular, is that the the segregation, the cultural segregation that is so normal in our country is not accidental. And that is the mistake that many of us have made is to think about racial and ethnic segregation. You know, I live in a mostly white neighborhood or I live in a mostly black neighborhood or, you know, my, my, uh, my town is mostly Latino. We, those of us who are white have thought about that in terms of cultural or personal preference. People just choose to live with people who they're most comfortable with. But in fact, the history of our country is one in which you know, segregation by race and ethnicity had the had the power of the federal government behind it, and, and uh, redlining, and legis- right? Right, that, redlining. Yeah. Yep, exactly, redlining. Um, who had access to federally backed uh, mortgages? Um, it was only white people who could who could access a fed- federally backed mortgage. Uh, most of the GIs returning from uh, World War II who could actually access the GI Bill were were white. So there were all of these 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 um, these policies in place that had the backing of the federal government that, you know, arranged people by race and ethnicity. Now, that's not true anymore today, right? Like, like those laws are no longer on the books. But the reason that we still see this kind of segregation is that the, the primary way of building wealth in this country is through uh, home ownership. By far, that is how the average American builds builds wealth in this country, and so somebody who could access, you know, a new suburb or uh, who could access a, a low interest federally backed loan two three generations ago has been able to 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 amass a certain amount of wealth and pass that on generationally. Those who have not been able to do that, disproportionately people of color and especially African Americans, and so today we have a wealth gap that is absolutely obscene. Some statistics will say that you know the average African 
African-American family has 7% of the wealth of the average white family. And so just by virtue of, of how this has played out over the generations reinforces this kind of uh, segregation. You add to this histories in different uh, areas of our country of sundown towns where uh, you know, people of color could not be caught in town after the sun went down or something terrible would happen to them. And that is true throughout the South. But here in, in Illinois, uh, we have sundown towns in the suburbs here. Again, they're, they're not advertising themselves as such today, but sure. you don't have to go very far back in history to find this. And so you have a history, even in this country, of places where people of color used to live, but were ran out. That's a long answer to say the segregation, cultural segregation in our country is not neutral. It wasn't by happenstance. It was intentional. And once we see that, once we understand that as Christians, then we're able to say, hold on, this is a wicked pattern in our world. And we are not, and we're called to not conform to those kinds of patterns. We're called to, for the sake of the gospel, go against those kinds of patterns. It's not to be the same way in the church as it is in, in our culture at large. That then I think opens up all sorts of creative opportunities and possibilities. But we have to realize uh, again the sort of wicked intention behind that segregation that that many of us have just taken for granted for a long, long time. So one of the things that uh in recognizing that it, it, the next logical question for me is, is okay. So it's not accidental. And this is clearly in my community specifically as I'm um, is, is 98% white. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do I break, how do I break through the intentional segregation? Yeah. yeah. And, and specifically in the church, because I, I think most of yep, my, yep. most of my listeners are, uh, would identify as Christ followers. Yep. And, and one of the things that we talk about here is how do we reclaim good practices for faith and life? So what, what, what should the church be doing? And then maybe what should the individual be doing to break through that intentional segregation? Yeah. And that's my heart as well, too. I'm a pastor and I'm you know, deeply committed to the local church. And, and I, obviously we have to engage with some of these historical realities. We have to engage with the sociological structures around us, but we are the people of God and, and yeah. it's the congregation that, that reflects the, the person of Jesus to our community. And so I, I love that that's the starting point for you and wholeheartedly agree with that. I, I think it starts with telling the truth. Um, we follow the one who claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, right? Yeah, Jesus yeah. is truth itself personified. And so we should have no fear in telling the truth about everything. Uh, again, we, we've not been so truthful necessarily about some of these racialized patterns in our, in our uh, cities and towns. And, um, and so we should be. We, we should, I, I think that, that pastors who care about this or ministry leaders who care about this will need to go on a little bit of a, of a journey of education in their own context and come to learn how did things get to be the way they are today? I was in a, a majority white town on the West coast uh, a year and a half ago, and it was similar, you know, it's just, Hey, this just kind of white. This is okay. There's a native American reservation over here, but otherwise we're about 85% white in our city. Uh, I was there for three days. And so day two, I had some time. I just did a, like 30 minutes of internet research and very quickly found on the, on the books, um, uh, these these racial uh, covenants on uh, new homes that were sold in the city in the 40s and 50s. And these covenants are still on the book. You can look them up. And 
and all of a sudden, okay, there it is. There, there is some history there that we need to be aware of that helped uh, contribute to the kind of segregation we see today. So, so we got to start by telling the truth. Then in our church context, we begin by, by, by teaching, by, by educating, mm. by forming uh, our, our people to understand their reality more accurately. It, I, I think about it like this in, in the, you know, in the first generation church, when you read the epistles, the, uh, whether it's Paul or, or Peter or John, they're having to educate their people about this new life within the kingdom, right? There's all these assumptions within the Greco-Roman culture that cannot be brought into the church. And so over and over again, they're having to say, look, you know, here's, here's how you got to start thinking about idolatry. Here's how you got to start thinking about sexuality, on and on, family within the kingdom, um, we need to do a similar kind of thing because we have made some assumptions about the neutrality of certain areas of our society that are not neutral, that have a bend toward injustice to them. So as we start telling the truth and learning the truth of ourselves, then we start equipping our congregation to see more accurately our circumstances and how those circumstances are not pointing us into the kingdom of God, but have actually oriented us into a kind of uh, racial segregation and complicity of injustice that that's very harmful for the witness of the church and frankly is, is harming sisters and brothers in Christ. There's a lot there, <laughs> but it's so important. I think it's so important for church leaders to hear that and to, and to listen to that. I, I think um, one of the ways that you try to tackle that is with this idea of um, discipleship. And so um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, disciple making as the next revival of the church. I actually think that that That's will good. be the thing that takes the church into the next season, just an authentic um, life on life yeah. kind of discipling. So the, the two questions that I have around that topic to start is uh, what, what's your definition of discipling? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think it is such a broad thing that gets tossed around a lot. And especially when we think about Sunday school kind of Sometimes people use that word. That's not how I would use it. But right. Um, and then, and then, why do we need to attack uh, true solidarity through disciple yeah. making? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, discipleship is central. This is, and again, we're the church, right? So we have our own language. We have our own tools. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to borrow other things, right. right? I mean, it's all there in the scriptures, and, and certainly discipling is is one of those. Uh, these are Jesus's uh, final instructions to his followers, right? And so it, this has got to be absolutely central, I think, to, to any movement for us toward solidarity, which we'll talk about here in just a second. Um, I, I borrow from Dallas Willard on this and say that um, to be a disciple is to follow Jesus in order to become like Jesus, in order to do what Jesus does. Mm. So it's follow, become, do. Um, Jesus calls people to leave behind and, uh, other things and, and follow him. There's only one Lord. There's only one savior. We leave everything else behind to follow Jesus. The expectation though, is that we're going to be transformed then from uh, following Jesus. Um, Jesus comes to transform us from the inside out, right? He's not interested in the outside of the cup. He wants the inside to be completely made new, right? Paul uses the language in, in the epistles of, of literally dying and being resurrected. But this is, this is what we, this is what happens to followers of Jesus. We're totally transformed. But then, and I think we often leave this out, that we do what we see Jesus doing. So, so Jesus calls us for his followers, and it's very explicit. You're going to now, I'm going to send you out at some point. You're, you're yeah. going to do the stuff that right. you saw me do, right? You're going to heal. You're going to cast out demons. You're going to proclaim the gospel. And, um, 
and so that that for me is sort of the telos, the end of discipleship, is that filled by the Holy Spirit, we now do what we have seen Jesus do. Um, how disciples are made then is important, and I'll try to say this just briefly. Uh, too often, I hear myself as a preacher saying something like this: "Look, if you just really, really believed this, then you would, right? Then you would live it out." And it betrays a, a sort of uh, anthropology that's very, very mind-centered. Change somebody's sure. mind, and then, well, a, a philosopher named James K. A. Smith at, at Calvin, he really helped me on this, um, using sort of some of Augustine's writing. We're not we're not mostly thinking beings or believing beings. We're desiring beings. We're loving beings. We, we navigate our way through the world by what we, what we, what we want, what we love. Uh, now that lines up perfectly what Jesus does to us by giving us new hearts, by transforming us, not just in our thoughts, but in, in what we actually love. And so any vision of, of, of transformation, I think, has to include our, our deepest desires and loves, which means, again, that the discipleship that we're thinking about can't just be about, here's some new information and here mm. read this book. I, I wish it were that simple. Uh, it actually has to take into account our full embodied humanity, uh, desires that are then orienting us into the reconciled kingdom of God. So, so that's why I think for, for uh, the move towards solidarity, we need to think, again, not in terms of a little bit of information, but this complete transformation that discipleship can actually accomplish in us. Um, yeah, and we can go into a little bit more of, of what that actually looks like or how we go about doing that but that that to me is why discipleship is is critical well and you, you kind of do that in the in the book right you you break down uh seven practices mm-hmm. of different things um i i have lots of questions about a lot of them but i want to let you start um with with why the seven practices and kind of how you got there and yeah. why it was important to get which is the part i love most what's so practical about um, what this looks like. Yeah. Well, so, so uh, discipleship involves practice, right? It, yeah. It's it. And, and importantly, it involves practicing together uh, how we are shaped and formed the, the, the habits, which in turn orient our direction in life. These things are shaped through corporate practices. And the church has known this for, for, Ever right? I mean, this is the 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 the, the liturgies. Whether they're, I, mean, I grew up Catholic, right? This is my entire life. There you go. There right. you go. And and those of us who are Protestant or more low church, like myself, um, as much as we might not identify those things clearly, there's still practices that we're doing on a regular basis. It's a sure. prayer meeting. It's coming to service. It's a mission trip. Whatever, right? And and we expect that these things are are forming us, are discipling us. So so that's that's why the, the practices were really important to me. I. I also because um, in, in, in much of, of white evangelical history, attempts at addressing racial injustice have, have fallen very flat. And I go into why that is using a really important book, Divided by Faith, by, by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, to, to try to show you know, why we've, we've struggled in this area in the past. Um, and I think one of the ways to overcome some of that is to think corporately, is to think as a community, how are we being shaped together to follow Jesus together? Um, the practices I chose uh, in, those, in those last chapters, I chose because I think most ministries and churches are already doing them. Yeah. I, you know, here's my personal confession. It's hard for me to read a, a ministry book and then put it down and feel like, oh man, I got to change everything <laughs> or I've been doing everything wrong or I got to right. start this whole new thing, you know, and I'm just tired already and do I actually have energy to do all of that? I didn't want to do that. I, I instead wanted to try to identify 
things that are already had good practices that are already happening in our church. For example, Holy Communion, the Lord's yeah. Supper. Like whether you celebrate that monthly or weekly, it's happening in most of our churches on a regular basis and it's very important. So again, you don't have to start doing this thing. The I just want to ask some questions about how might we reimagine the Lord's Supper so that its potential to form a people increases and so that its potential to form and disciple a people uh, intentionally away from that segregation that we were talking about earlier and into solidarity with the body of Christ, that, that that's raised up by, by how we've reimagined something like the Lord's Supper. Talk about preaching, talk about children's ministry, evangelism, et cetera. I, I think these, these practices that the church has over the years said, these are good, godly things for us to do. I think they just hold more latent potential than we've necessarily explored. So you, you mentioned, uh, the, the Lord's table. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you could kind of maybe paint a picture of where we are now and where we could be to take a step towards, um, and, you know, intentionally getting rid of that segregation. Yeah. So I, I think about that, that Greek word koinonia fellowship yeah. and uh, our koinonia, uh, is with the father, but it's also with one another. Um, and when we come to table, this is one of the, the profound spiritual realities that we are proclaiming in that act of obedience in receiving the, excuse me, the blood and, 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 the, and, and, the, and, the, and the body in, in that act of, of communion. We are demonstrating this fellowship with the Father and with one another. As white Christians, as white people in this country, we've been formed in the way of individualism. Um, we, we see ourselves mostly as autonomous individuals who, who willfully, voluntarily participate in something like Holy Communion. And so we come, we receive, and as we're reflective about uh, ourselves and our sin beforehand, we're doing so in a very individual manner. That's all fine and good, but there ought to be more to it than that, too. We ought to be able to reflect uh, corporately as well on that question about fellowship with one another. Once we see that the, the cultural segregation around us is, is not neutral, is not normal, that there's, there's some wicked intent behind it, then we can start asking questions as we come to the table about that reconciliation within the body of Christ. We can start, we can start mourning and even lamenting a little bit the, the, the reality of our separation from the rest of the body of Christ. To me, that's, that's the starting point. That, that's one of the things that we could start to do in our white congregations is to point out and to realize as we come to table, there's a bit of a lament in our coming, that we are, we're coming with, within a silo that is created by our society and that is not reflective of God's will for us. Now, how we, you know, how we start to actually make some movement here, um, I think this, the sky is, is the limit here. Um, our church does a, uh, a monthly potluck right after the Lord's Supper. Mm. And for me, this is because I, I think the, the lines between the Lord's Supper and a feast were not particularly clear in the early church. And so oh, I, I would agree. I mean, we're Methodists here. So love feasts are kind of a part of our tradition. Yeah. And it's a super thin line. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's, uh, and what a wonderful way to sort of, right, live. We just proclaimed this koinonia with one another at table. Now we're going to sit around tables together and actually, you know, start to live into that. Again, in most of our churches, though, that's going to happen in kind of a racially segregated way. So you know, what if a church 
started to intentionally develop a relationship with another congregation in their, in their town or in their neighborhood? What if they started doing maybe a yearly service project together? Um, you know, what if they said on a quarterly basis, we're going to worship together? Or I know some churches who on Good Friday, they do these, these shared worship services together. Sure. But what if at every one of those points, they said, we're always going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as well. We're, we're always going to make sure that when we're together, um, even if it's a service project on a, on a Saturday afternoon, we're going to make sure to set aside some sacred space at the beginning or the end for us to together live into this proclamation of what the gospel has done for us. Now, that does a few things. It, it reminds those white Christians, oh my goodness, th- these are my sisters and brothers in Christ, you know, and... And their stories need to start mattering to me. The other thing it does, though, and this is a hard, hard truth to, 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 to admit, many of our, white, of our white Christians have never had the opportunity to be served the elements by anyone who's not white. Um, and, and so there's something, I think, really formational and significant about even just that, like that subtle message that's being, being proclaimed. I had a, a ministry supervisor, a, an African-American man who was uh, about to retire, tell a story of of visiting a white church and uh, being invited to serve communion with the co-pastor and all white people in the room and in the, in the, in the sanctuary. And one white man looking at him as he came up, taking the bread that they were serving it via intinction, taking the bread from the white pastor and then looking at my black friend and just putting the bread right in his mouth, eating it and then turning his back on it without receiving the cup. I mean, obviously dramatic, right? And we wouldn't anticipate that happening probably in most of our congregations today. And yet for me, I'm, I'm still asking, are, have white Christians had the chance to, to, to sit at this most holy and sacred meal with people who are not white, to be served by leaders of color in this way? So I'm looking at these little nudges, and we could certainly talk about more of those, that once we start to see the latent potential of these practices, I, I think there's a lot of creativity that, that becomes available to us. And I suggest a few ways, but my assumption is that churches would discover a, a whole bunch of other ways in their own context to do this. It feels like there's uh, an endless opportunity to get outside of our comfort zone right. in this area, which right. is a beautiful thing. W- one of the areas that you do head, and you mentioned it briefly, that I'm going to selfishly bring up is Children's Ministry of Reconciliation. Yeah. So I have three kids, uh, 14, almost 10, and 8. Um, h- how do we, as white Christians, engage this conversation? You talk about uh, something in the book where um, to realize when – when did we first have the race talk mm-hmm, as white mm-hmm, Christians mm-hmm. and how, and uh, man, that really, I kind of, I mean, convicted me. I, I don't know what yeah. to do with that, but yeah. um, in terms of like being, you know, we've already had some of that conversation with our kids, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't sit here, you know, righteously and say it was because we thought about it, but rather mm-hmm. we were, it, it came up on the news as, mm-hmm. as black men have died, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's come up on the news um, if they're kid, if people have kids that are younger, how, how do we and do this individually and how do we yeah. do it corporately? Yeah. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that question. Um, you know, many of my, my close friends of color, African-American friends in particular will, will reflect on when they first learned that race mattered. And for almost all of these friends, it's four years old, five years old, six years old. Mm. Um, and, and much of the time, because their parents or caregivers are sitting down and having an intentional conversation with them, because they realized that if they didn't do that, that they would start internalizing some very destructive things about what this 
society says about them. Or they would have some kind of racist encounter and start internalizing that or be deformed by that. Those of us who are white, obviously, uh, that that has not been our, our story for the most sure. part, right? For many of us, it's high school, college, early adulthood that we start maybe thinking about this a, a little bit and, and usually in a much more detached kind of way. So I do think that this is one of the, the immediate acts of solidarity that white parents can start doing is we can say, look, we know that this conversation is not optional for sisters and brothers in Christ. So we're going to have this conversation with our children as well. We're going to start discipling our kids and not let the world disciple our children in this area of race. Come on, that'll preach. Right. That, because that's what we're doing when we, when we don't have these conversations. And again, so this is really important. Once we understand that our cultural is not neutral in this area, then we say, oh, okay. So it, it actually has an end it has a telos to it. And so we need to go against that. So let me take the lead in discipling my own children here. This is not about trying to raise a politically correct child or a perfectly racially enlightened child like that. Those things are kind of without outside of our grasp, right? We're always going to stumble our way through this. It's about discipleship. How can I make sure that our children are growing up with the truth of the gospel, the truth of the image of God of being born in every single person clearly in their own minds and in their own hearts? So it starts really early and real research tells us that our children start internalizing this stuff very, very young. So it's a luxury to not do this, as an act of solidarity and discipleship, we start doing this. You asked about the church. I actually think the church has a really big role to play here with white parents and caregivers because we didn't grow up with this, right? So we don't have a memory of how do you do this. And so I think a church could, could actually offer you know, discipleship for families around this. Could I, I think it's less about... Uh, giving parents a list of here's the things to say and do and more about virtues and character development for for parents. How are we discipling parents to have that strong character, to not turn away from difficult conversations, to be present, to notice as as there's opportunities to talk about these kinds of things. So I'm, I'm sure a white church would start including some language in the children's ministry itself. I talk a little bit about that in the book, but I do think a bigger thing that we could do is, is create some spaces where parents are coming together, having safe conversations. I mean, look, it's important that, that white parents have a space where we can say, listen, I grew up in kind of a racist home, you know, or I grew up uh, with the idea that it was best just to be colorblind and to not talk about this at all. Uh, A church could create that, that safe environment for, for parents to to start unpacking some of their own experiences and then to, to start kind of forming, shaping, discipling those same families so that they can now disciple their children. So you've been doing this work for a really long time and a lot of research. And I, I'm, I can't imagine the amount of pushback that you've received. Um, and, and I often hear things like, oh, the, you know, I'm, I'm colorblind and, and those mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. statements. How, how do you respond? Um, and I'm, I'm trying not to put a slant on it, but I have a lot of feelings about it. So <laughs> like, uh, how, how do you respond to people that don't want to accept that yeah. But this is the reality for people that look different than them. So, I yeah. mean, we're talking about white Christians, right? Sure. How, yeah. how do you, how do you, uh, how do we respond to white Christians who, um, who don't necessarily see the problem, who mm-hmm. say that they don't see color, who say that they grew up in a home that where everyone was welcome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, 
I think for, for ministry leaders and pastors, we do have to count the cost ahead of time. There's going to be pushback. Again, that's part of following Jesus, so that's okay. Yeah. Uh, it's just that most of us haven't seen this as part of that, that work, right? So I do think it's really wise to count the cost and to be clear about the, the call of this. Uh, secondly, though, I, I, think, um, I think it's important to discern. There are, there are antagonists in this work, and I'm not sure that there's a lot we can do about that. Um, there, there are people who are just so opposed to, to anything around you know, racial justice, racial reconciliation. Uh, we shouldn't walk away from those people, but to be frank with you, I don't know how much time and energy we, we give to, to that particular person who just wants to fight about this. Mm. Now, there's, there's a whole, I think, significant middle here, though, of, of, of people who are, who are open there might be some defensiveness. There might be some shame around these conversations. There may be some feelings of guilt. That's all very normal. But there's, there's a level of openness. And for me personally, when I discern that there's that level of openness, I'll, I'll sit with you all day long. Um, you know, if, you're, if your commitment is not to fight, but to, but to converse, but to, but to learn, man, I'll, I'll, I'll sit with you all day long. And, and I do think that's a particular call for those of us who are, are white Christians. So many of our sisters and brothers of color who who do this work, man, they they have faced those antagonists. They they get that pushback. They they've been in this fight for so long that it's the least I can do to to be committed to having those difficult conversations, uh, you know, with people. I I really believe that this is God's work. I I genuinely believe that God wants the church to be reconciled. I I genuinely believe that a reconciled church bears beautiful witness to the love of the Father for the world. So um so it's I think it's worth it. I think it's worth us sitting in those spaces having those conversations not being reactive when people feel defensive. Uh, being you know empathetic in those conversations, even as we continue to to speak the truth, I'll say for me personally, here's what's been really helpful: um, having close friends of color who I'm accountable to, who I know love me. So when I find myself in these difficult conversations, I'm trying to do two things: I'm trying to to be hospitable and continue to invite white people to the table to have this hard conversation. So so how what can my posture be? that will be hospitable and welcoming as, as you come to this conversation without ever dishonoring those friends of color who, who have, you know, suffered much more in this conversation than I ever will. That's, that's the, the, the kind of balance for me that I'm looking for. If I ever feel like I'm starting to dishonor those friends, well, I got to pull back. And if that means that a white person walks away for a little while, well, that's okay. I have to trust that to the Holy spirit. But, but that for me, if we can, if we can stay in that, and that zone, uh, I think there can be a lot of fruitfulness that that happens. One of the things that's clear to me as we've been now talking for a while is that you are super intentional about uh, your friendships. You're super intentional about how you lead. And so I I guess I'm kind of curious, um, in all the years that you've done this of, of being intentional about racial diversity, what have you learned about God through that lens? Yeah, um, a lot, and, and and enough that it would almost be a little hard to articulate exactly, sure. um, because it's it's just kind of normal now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but let me let me try to think about that a little bit. I 
as I've been saying throughout, um, God's heart for the church, man, it, I don't think we'll ever fully grasp it. And, and I think what we have contented ourselves with as white Christians oftentimes has been a very, a very small part of what God actually desires for us. Um, and participating in the reconciliation of all things, participating in God's righteousness and justice, experiencing cross-cultural friendships and trust and mission are, are just, it's all so good. It's not without its difficulties, but it is so, so good. Um, I, I regularly will, will say to, to, to people who are in this work, um, you know, we, we, we talk about the difficulty of it. We talk about the cost of it. But there's no temptation to, to walk away from it. There's no temptation to say, nah, it's too much because it's just too good. It's just, it's just too much. It's too close to God's heart. Yeah. Um, and so what am I, I'm going to walk away from these deep friendships that I have. I'm going to walk away from, you know, solidarity with, with my friends, you know, struggles and, and, and joys. Of course not. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly do that. I'm going to, I'm going to somehow go back to a smaller vision of what the gospel has accomplished in, in our lives and in this world. Like no, no way. So. I do think for me that's a, that's a big part of it is that I got I, I've seen the goodness of God and am, am just convinced that there's there's more and more of that available to us if we're willing to kind of walk some of these painful roads. That's beautiful, and uh, I I love that vision for so many of us. Um, there's probably somebody's listening right now who's been super convicted by this, mm-hmm. and um, they may or may not pick up a copy of the book. I I, I I highly recommend they do, but what's, what's one or two things that a white Christian can do today yep. Yep. Um, to start closing the gap? I think, uh, I think pray. <laughs> I know that sounds Sunday school. No, I love it. <laughs> I, I, I just think that uh, once we realize God's heart for this, then these are great things to ask God for, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, regularly, you know, I'll talk about, you know, my community, my friends, and, and some and a you know, white person will say, well, how, how do I make friends like that? You know, how do I? And I think, well, start by asking God, right? That, that's a good thing to want, to want to be in reconciled relationships, to want to have mentors of color who you can submit to and be discipled by. Like, what a beautiful request to ask God for. So I, I would say that immediately. Start praying, start asking that God rearrange your life such that this becomes um, impossible for you to ignore, impossible for you to walk away from. I think those prayer requests can also start intentionally including sisters and brothers of color who, whether you know them personally or reading in the news, really have, have um, a lot to struggle with right mm-hmm. now in our, in our political and, and cultural landscape. Uh, so letting your heart be broken by the, the, the family of God that you are related to in, in Christ Jesus, I, I also think is a beautiful thing to pray for. Um, there's so much that's been written that can be really, really helpful. Maybe this book is one of those, but I, I think for many white Christians, that also is a very important on-ramp. Um, you might not know anybody to talk with, but boy, there's some great books out there that you can start reading, to help you to start thinking about scriptures a little bit differently, thinking about the body of Christ a little bit larger. Um, that, that changing of our imagination, I think, is, is re- a really important thing in this process. Uh, it's beautifully, beautifully said. Uh, where can my listeners go? I know they're going to want to follow up with you. Where can they go to find you on the interwebs? And, and what does that look like? Uh, where's the best place to start? 
Yeah, I mean, the simplest thing would be, I, I keep a, a simple website, dwswanson, dwswanson.com, and I'll, links to social media stuff is there. I have a, a weekly newsletter I send out most weeks. The link to that is there as well. So that, that's kind of a, probably the one stop that would be most, most helpful. That's great. And we'll, we'll link to all of that in the, um, the show notes and make sure that people have access to it. Um, one of the ways that I love to end my interviews is with a final question that's an advice question to yourself. And so um, as you think about a young ministry leader moving to Chicago and you, and you go back to that time period when you and your wife first mm-hmm. came, what's the one piece of advice that you would give yourself in hindsight as you moved into Chicago? Uh, that's boy, I love that question. It would probably be be patient. Mm. I I have this clear memory of uh, of those early years and and hearing you know different different friends or mentors talk about the people who had formed them, the relationships that they had, that the mentors they had. And I thought, boy, I, I want that. You know, how do I get that? And a wise person said to me, you know, if you don't if you don't have these mentors, let books be your mentors, let authors be your mentors for now, even as you continue praying for that. And I took that seriously. I just, you know, love to read and read a ton. Uh, but I remember feeling impatient about that. And I look at my life now and I think, oh man, God has been so good to me in that area. <laughs> I just I could not I couldn't have even known to to ask for the mm. the things and the people that God has has allowed to me to be in relationship with. So if it's God's heart, God's going to respond. God's, God's going to be faithful. And, and so being okay to be patient with that and being formed in the process. I, I could have been told that more than once, I'm sure. <laughs> That's wonderful. David, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. And, and even more than your time, being generous with your heart and, um, and what God's laid on your heart to share with the world. So thank you for being bold and courageous with this writing. And I just Um, I pray with you and for you that this will do some amazing things for churches like mine all Mm. over the United States. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Like I said, what a great episode with David. I'm so thankful for his heart, for his honesty. I know uh, some of the things that really spoke to me was about the idea that segregation was intentional and the laws and legislation and how if we want to break the intentional segregation, we have to be intentional about bridging the gap. I also thought it was so good to think about race in the terms of our children. Uh, Those are just a couple of the many things that spoke to me in this conversation. Um, Again, I I hope you found it as rich and as fruitful as I did. If you want to be a part of the Reclamation community, please join us. Text uh, RECLAIM to 66866. Do me a favor, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a rating or review. Uh, Leave a comment where you can. All of it goes a long way in helping us spread the word about what God is doing through this platform. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to join you next week as we drop another episode uh, designed to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life.